The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. How can you build more resiliency into your professional life? Hey, listeners, welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we've got Dory Clark joining us. Welcome, Dory. Welcome. Hi, so glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you. Yeah, I can't wait to talk more. Um, If you don't know Dory, Dory is an author. She's a speaker. She's a marketing strategy consultant. She's written a number of books, including Stand Out, Reinventing You, and her most recent, which is Entrepreneurial You. And that's how our our interest got sparked in her because of its focus on uh, multiple income streams and entrepreneurship, which has been something that's highly discussed, you know, for us in our circles, and I'm sure in yours too. Dory's also been name one of the top 50 thinkers in the world. So beyond these small accolades, we also, of course, stalk the crap out of her, only to find out she has an even more interesting background beyond that. So we can't wait to hear more about you, Dory. And we'll kick off with our speed dating questions. I love it. Thank you. We are so excited to have you here and so excited that we want to get to know you better by having you jump into the arena with us during some speed dating questions, which we did not share beforehand. So let's see how you do. Are you ready to jump in? Oh, I'm so ready. Awesome. Okay. So you are an author. And so we are sure that you probably read a lot. And we're curious to know what is your most favorite book that you've recently read? So in your top, I don't know, few months or so. So recently, sparked by the pandemic, I was motivated to reread Fooled by Randomness by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which I had first listened to on audiobook years ago, and I decided it was relevant all over again. So I have been walking by myself all around Manhattan listening to it on audiobook again. Oh, nice. Fooled by randomness. I need to write that one down. Yeah, that's like a, that's like a beyond speed dating question. We got to talk more. That's like second date. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, we're, we're getting serious, guys. We're getting serious now. <laughs> Dory, who is the most inspiring person that you know or you know of? You know, one person who really has an inspiring story is someone that I actually met just a few months ago. Some of you guys may have even heard about him because there was an, a news article that kind of went viral last year about his story, but his name is Doug Lindsay, and he is a wonderful guy, really nice, but his story is crazy. He had a rare disease. It was some kind of an endocrine disease, I think, and it left him bedridden for 11 years uh, You know, as a young guy. It started when he was in college. He couldn't get out of bed. He, he was very, very ill, and he used that time to research his illness, which medicine did not understand, figure out what caused it. And he devised a surgery, which he then persuaded a doctor to do for him. The doctor did the surgery and it cured him. And he is now better and up and about and is a motivational speaker and works as a consultant helping other people with rare diseases figure out how to solve them. Wow. That's incredible. What? I have not heard of, of amazing. Him. 
That is such an inspiring story. And I'm so glad you said he's a motivational speaker, because if he wasn't, I would say he needs to start doing that right now. (laughs) Yeah, stat. (laughs) Okay, the next one may seem like an easy one. Rain or snow, but we want to know why. Well, I'm I'm going to say snow because I grew up in North Carolina and snow was a really big deal where I was not from the mountains. So it only snowed a couple of times during my childhood. So it was always a big deal when it happened. And so I feel like rain, you know, it's nice, but it's a little pedestrian. It's just kind of annoying. And snow is is very exciting. <laughs> I love it. I always, you know, growing up in New York, I've been around snow my whole life. And I always think how wonderful it must be for someone who's who's never experienced snow to experience it for their first time. Because I don't remember my first time experiencing snow. But it is a, a really cool phenomenon. It is. I'm from California. So I'm like, snow was the phenomenon. If you got to see snow, it was like, oh my God, this is magic. And I, I love the the comment that rain is pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to agree. I didn't know. Um, I, cool. I agree with that too. Yeah, it is annoying. <laughs> All right. And then Dory, when you were growing up, what did you want to be or do that you can first remember? Oh, for sure. The thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to be a spy. And uh, of course, you know, now in revealing this, it would make me a pretty ineffective spy. <laughs> but uh, but I was I was really into James Bond. I thought that was so cool. So uh, so that was that was my big ambition. Love it. I All love right. It. Well, I love these speed dating. I'm like, we could we could actually just have a conversation about these four speed dating questions. <laughs> I love your answers. All right. Awesome. So so Dory, let's get to know you a little bit more for our listeners and for us, like start from the beginning. We, you know, as I shared earlier, we looked at your bio, we checked into who you are and it was so intriguing. And even like the, the fact that you purposefully shared your drive and your ambition from a young age, I'm just curious, like, we want to know, tell us all about you start from the beginning. Well, I don't, I don't want to bore you with too much information, but what I will say is I, I grew up in a uh, small town in North Carolina and it was famous as a golf resort. And this is, you know, amazing. If you're a golfer, I found it to be distinctly less amazing as like a seven-year-old and then a, and then a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. And I was just like, why would anyone choose this? <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to trade places with you, Jackie. I think I, I if I had grown up in, in New York, I would have felt so lucky, but it just, it felt really slow and boring and kind of culturally vacuous. And it was just not my place at all. And then it got even more acute for me when I was a young teenager. And I realized I was gay. And I was just like, Oh, God, I really have to get out of here. So basically, part of what motivated me early on was I had a really highly detailed get out a dodge plan. And so I, I literally had a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C, all of which w- were aimed at finding a way for me to leave my hometown. And so I was lucky enough that actually my plan A worked, which is that I went to a, a university, which I'm now fortunate enough to be on the board of, uh, which is kind of cool, Mary Baldwin University. Um, they had a early college entrance program, which I was able to enter when I was 14. And so that was kind of my my path out of my little town. And I felt like that was my opportunity for me to get started on my life a little bit earlier. Can I ask a quick question? How did you know there was so much more out there? Television. 
<laughs> oh, I was really curious. Okay, yeah. Every, everybody slags on TV, you know, and I mean, you know, most of it is bad. Although, although now, of course, we're you know, as as they say, we are now in the golden age of television. So television is definitely better than it ever was. I mean, it's not like television was amazing. We're talking like the eighties, the early nineties. I mean, it was like head of the class or whatever. It was not fantastic, <laughs> but all the all the TV, you know, it was set in interesting places like. L.A. Law, for instance, okay? L.A. Law is a very cheesy, soapy television show. I mean, probably the most famous thing that I remember from L.A. Law is that there was like a villain who died by falling down an elevator shaft. Like it was that kind of show. And yet it showed exciting people having exciting high level professional careers in a big city. And I was like, that's amazing. So yeah, there was no internet. I didn't get internet till I was in college. So there was not very much out there. So yeah, it was just me watching TV. I was also an obsessive news viewer. People often even today say that I have a Canadian accent and they're like, oh, you're from Canada and I am not from Canada. Uh, what I did do was imprint like a little duckling on Peter Jennings and I watched Peter Jennings every <laughs> night and was very, very into him. And so I probably picked up a little affectation from him. Yeah, I mean, television can <gasps> really amazing. do wonders. That, that's awesome. Really impressive. Also, your 14-year-old self deciding to enter college at, at that age. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, what was funniest to me at the time was the questions that adults would ask. Because I mean, like, I don't really know what world these people grew up in, like what their priorities were, but they'd be like, aren't you so sad that you'll never get to have a prom? I'm like, really? That's your question? Like, that's the most important thing for, for a person is to, is to have a prom? Like, are you joking? <laughs> so, so I, I had no regrets leaving that behind. I thought it was so amazing to get to go to college and to, you know, to get to live, you know, quasi independently. While I was in this program, they had some sort of strictures, of course, curfews and things like that, that I, uh, that I, was very frustrated by, but nonetheless, you know, there's a lot more independence being on a college campus and to be able to, to make friends and to, and to, to pick your classes, to not just have like, oh, it's, you know, seventh grade English, you know, like where things get shoved down your throat, but you get to choose what you want to study in college was so fantastic. And the professors at Mary Baldwin were so good and so passionate. So I thought it was, uh, it was really wonderful. I, I certainly, needed to level up in terms of uh, being able to do good college work. But, but you know, I, I had been a good student before, so I was able to figure it out. So academically, it wasn't that hard. And socially, it was great because I was meeting people who, you know, for the first time were as interested in kind of intellectual pursuits as I was. So I thought it was fantastic. I mean, it wasn't for everybody. There was a, a roommate that they assigned me freshman year who left after like, two months to go back to high school. I was like, wow, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I had a lot of hostility though, because she had, she, okay, I'm not joking. This girl really had a thing for ticking clocks and she had three different ticking clocks in our room that would tick at different intervals. And so if she had not left to go back to, to high school, I think I probably would have killed her uh, <laughs> at a certain point. But so it was not for everyone, but it was definitely for me. You wow. Are I, okay, talk. first of all, the, yeah, you are <laughs> hysterical. I, I'm laughing all morning. <laughs> Seriously, laughing already in the first like 11 minutes. You know, Dory, I'm hearing like personality wise, I hear and I 
feel so much tenacity from you. Like I, I just get the sense that you're an incredibly tenacious person. I also hear that freedom is a very real value of yours. Independence is something you keep calling out. Even to know that at 14 is pretty incredible. But what I heard that was actually really valuable, I think, is you mentioned that it was funny, the questions you were asked. And even the alluding to that that question is alluding to the idea to me of fitting in versus belonging. And it sounded like what you really wanted was not to fit in and go to prom, but to find a space that you belonged. That's very philosophical, Leah. Nice. I, I love it. I love it that you extrapolated that from my story about being resentful about ignorant parents' questions. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I mean, thanks to Brene Brown. (laughs) Yes, totally. I I think you were certainly on to something. One of the things that gets perhaps under-talked about or under-reported, of course, it is still a really challenging thing for a lot of people. Like if you're, you know, if you're different in some way, you know, in whatever way, but like if you're a gay teenager, I mean, not that it's like a contest. I think it's probably easier now, theoretically, than it was 20 plus years ago. But but nonetheless, it's still a difficult thing. I mean, literally another excellent podcast uh, like yours called The Jordan Harbinger Show. My friend Jordan runs it. And we did a Q&A last week because a young girl had written to him who was 13 and coming out and she wanted she wanted advice about that because she comes from a very religious family and and community and she knew she'd lose a lot of friends and all this kind of stuff so it's still hard for people but i think that that one of the things is that it is a forcing function we were talking about different forcing functions earlier before the show but it's a forcing function because if you can figure that out i mean obviously it can be very hard and traumatic for some people and uh, depending on their circumstances having to deal with that stressor can lead to bad outcomes but in the instances where you are able to figure it out and get get through that i think it can actually be very helpful because the way you get through it is to develop a very very healthy disregard for what anybody else is thinking or saying that you should do or saying that you should be you really have to in order to be fully functional and comfortable with yourself, you have to say, I actually really don't care what you think. And I think ultimately for every adult, for every person, we have to get there if we are going to be really successful as people. But it actually can be an advantage in some ways to be forced to get there earlier because unfortunately you see the results sometimes of people who for a really long time do feel like they have to do what is important to other people or what other people want them to do. And it's only later that they come back and say, oh, wow, I have to you know, go through this process of finding what's right for me or how I want to be in the world. So I, I think we all need to end up there. But it is in some ways uh, a, a driver to, to get there sooner. Wow. You just hit on such an amazing topic, being true to yourself, which so many people have a difficult time doing. And to your point, the advantage of getting that earlier has allowed you to move in so many amazing directions. Lee and I are both life coaches. So we work with clients often. And what I certainly find is that a lot of people have this fear of what others think of them. And it's overcoming that, that they really need to get through to then be their best selves. And because of this early age, you know, realization and moving forward and being true to yourself, you've done a lot of reinventing in your in your life, in your career. And you even have a book about it. 
And you've even been called an expert at self-reinvention by the New York Times. Curious, what does reinvention mean to you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, the initial impetus for for my reinvention was uh, kind of <laughs> involuntary, essentially. I had finished grad school and my first job out of grad school was working as a print journalist in Boston. And that you know, it was a was a great job. It was a cool job for somebody that that likes words and likes ideas and things like that. And I entered the profession in 2000, which was, uh, as it turns out, we now can look back historically. 2000 was the most lucrative year in history for the journalism industry. Profits were at an all time high. It was a great time to be in journalism, and then. All of a sudden, very quickly, journalism was not a great place to be because of Craigslist, because of the internet, and it lost uh, all its advertising revenue. And of course, uh, over the 15-year period from 2000 to 2015, 40% of American journalists lost their jobs. But I had both the, you could say, the fortune and the misfortune to be in the vanguard of that because I was hired in 2000. You know, it's usually easier the kind of last in, first out scenario. I got laid off in 2001 from my job. And part of what made it especially searing for me was that just by chance, I ended up getting laid off on Monday, September 10th, 2001. And so my first day of my job hunt was very inauspicious. And, you know, much, much like the current pandemic moment, it was one of those times where it was like, oh my God, what is happening out here? What's going on? Is this ever going to recover? I mean, obviously no one wanted to hire anyone. Everything was frozen. Nobody knew what was going to happen. The economy was at a standstill. And so I had to scrap to reinvent myself at that moment. My, I worked for this cheapskate little newspaper. They gave me four days of severance pay. You know, technically they gave, they gave me a week's pay, uh, but I had already worked one day. So it's four days of severance pay. And so like, good luck, kid. And, you know, I mean, I'm 22 years old. It's not like I had a lot of savings. So somehow in the middle of, you know, this 9-11 crisis, I had to figure out literally just how to get money. So I, I had to really figure out <laughs> reinvention pretty quickly. And so I ended up doing a lot of things. I freelanced as a journalist. I went into politics and ended up being a spokesperson on a number of campaigns. I ran a nonprofit for a few years. I did, I did all of these things and it, it heightened my interest in reinvention. And so later, later on, once I had started my own business and started consulting and, and doing things like that, I ended up writing this book about reinvention where I interviewed uh, multiple dozens of professionals who had successfully reinvented themselves to try to see if I could extrapolate out common principles of how people could do it more effectively, because I was really flying blind. I was just feeling my way and probably making a million mistakes. And I wanted to create something that would enable people to do it a little bit more gracefully, whether they were forced into it like I was with the layoff or now, you know, in the pandemic, like apparently 16 million Americans are, or if they are choosing to reinvent themselves and proactively saying, you know what, I, I want to try something different, or I want to stretch myself in a new way. Your story just continues to get more and more interesting to me. I mean, hearing four days of severance pay 
what I mean, and then going back to your your personality traits of like independence and freedom and tenacity, like what was going on in your mind when you're like, I've got four days to get paid? Yeah, it was uh, it was a little alarming to say the least. I mean, you know, the 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 good news, and of course, this is the advantage, you know, that's not not really fair in American society. Is you know, I I mean, I come from a, a middle class family where I knew I was not going to be homeless, you know, but it I was also not going to be super provided for like if it was really a problem i would have to like move home to north carolina which we have already established is not where i wanted to be not happening for you (laughs) so so it was not so dire like okay i'm gonna be in a box but it it was dire in the sense that i was living in boston i wanted to stay there i needed to to find a way to support myself that did not involve coming home to my childhood bedroom and so it it felt very very high pressured so i i just went into overdrive and i i think that you know we talk to the point of cliche sometimes about you know oh, every crisis is an opportunity but i think that for people who interpret it correctly i mean you know we we all know of course that we have these kind of primal you know fight or flight instincts and things like that but it's a real problem when during a crisis some people just just freeze and they can't do anything and they they just uh, you know sort of huddle in a ball i mean we all do that a little bit for short periods of time but you cannot huddle in a ball for a long period of time because you have to keep moving and so for me i was just like okay i've got to figure this out so it was actually a very transformative moment for me as an entrepreneur and I, you know, I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur at that point. I thought of myself as a journalist, a freelance journalist. But really, I was an entrepreneur in the sense that you have to get clients. And my clients were editors. And I became very, very astute very quickly at figuring out how to pitch editors effectively and what they would be interested in. Because I couldn't afford not to be. I had to re- reverse engineer the process. I had to figure out what they would want to hear from me because that meant selling a piece versus not selling a piece. And, you know, we are not talking about large amounts of money. Like I was, I was making on average, I was usually selling like two small pieces a week, which was probably about $400 a week. If I had a great week, I was, uh, I would, I would be able to get about $800 a week. But, you know, that was not every week. And that was like 800 bucks was like maybe, oh, like a, 3,500 word piece, you know, that's the kind of economics that we're talking about. So I had to learn how to essentially get in the mind of the customer and be able to create something quickly and effectively that they wanted. And that is at a fundamental level what an entrepreneur does. So I didn't realize that that would be good training, but it was, and it's a skill that I've I've used uh, quite a lot since then. Mm. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. So from your learnings and in terms of interviewing um, the people for Reinventing You, for our listeners, I'm curious if you can just share with us, what does it take to reinvent yourself? What I learned about reinvention is that fundamentally it's a three-step process that you have to go through. 
the the first one is taking essentially taking stock of where you are. So it's what I call um, discovering your brand. You are known for something. You are known as something right now. And you want to try to get a handle on what that is. Because if you don't have a clear sense of where you are now, it becomes really hard to to create that an, an effective and accurate roadmap of where you want to go. So that involves, you know, everything from kind of an excavation of like literally doing a Google search of yourself to see what comes up and what, you know, sort of asking yourself, okay, if this was someone who didn't know anything about me, who was seeing this, what would they be extrapolating about me by what results are coming up? Or, you know, look, looking at past performance evaluations to see what trends are emerging or, you know, asking your friends. I have a very, you know, sort of simple exercise called the three word exercise where people ask, you know, what are, what are the three words that describe me most? And, you know, th- the reason you do this is not necessarily to get some profound insight that you've never thought of before. Cause I mean, you know, odds are if you're a reasonably in touch person, you have a sense but what you want to do this is this is about understanding amplitude what you want to understand is what, literally out of all of the different traits you have what is it that seems most memorable or most important what stands out the most when your friends are talking about it because there's a difference between like oh yeah she's creative like yes or no is she creative versus oh my god you ask 10 people and the first thing that eight of them say is she's creative like that is information that you can use. So step one is that it's discovering your brand. Step two is identifying where you want to go. It is um, creating the the action plan for for where you want to to go with with your brand and with your reinvention. So it's feeling out what the options are and then creating a sense. I mean, it could be things like taking LinkedIn learning courses, for instance, you know, because there's often a gap between where you are and where you want to go. I've had the pleasure of uh, being an instructor on a bunch of them. But, you know, it could be it could be building your network because you may say, you know what, I really want to get into this field, but I don't, gosh, I don't really know anyone in that field. So I, I need to start meeting people. But understanding that gap and closing it. And then third and finally is what I call uh, living out your brand. Because we often think about reinvention and talk about it as kind of like a one-time thing. But the truth is you're constantly creating an impression in people's minds. Like this is kind of an ongoing thing. You're constantly meeting new people. And so you want to be asking yourself, okay, what what impression do I want to leave? Like, what would I like people to think about me or know about me? And then what are the actions that I can take on a regular basis that would be congruent with that so that it makes it more likely that people would actually think those things? I mean, we we can't, of course, control precisely what people think, but you can certainly take steps to make it more likely that if you, for instance, want to be seen as someone who is strategic, that, you know, maybe it's helpful for you, I'm making this up, to volunteer to be on or lead uh, the strategy committee, you know, something something like that begins to uh, to shape how people see you. So those would really be the, the three steps of reinvention. That's great. And just for everyone who's listening, you can find more of this in Reinventing You, Dory's book. So that's I, I love these three steps. It's very simple. The power of three super clear. And I love the exercises you shared. And one thing that was coming up for me as you were talking about some of this too, is, you know, you've 
you've been through this, like by force, you've been through the reinvention. And I'm sure there were those days, like you said, where you want to curl up in a ball and those days where you literally just said you have to keep moving forward. So maybe I've just answered this question, but it was making me think if you could tell anybody who's listening to this now in the middle of shelter in place and coronavirus, who that who's either with a job or without a job or considering reinvention or being forced to do it, what's a note they could write on their bathroom mirror to look at every morning? You know, it, the the first thing that came to mind, Leah, is a note that I actually had up for a long time, which does not in any way relate to this, but that's stretch. Because, you know, your muscles get very tight when you're sitting at desks. So people, don't forget to stretch. That's really important. Especially, I will suggest the pigeon pose for uh, for your hip flexor. Favorite yoga pose. It's a very good one. Yes. So stretch is the, is the note that I personally have. But if we're thinking about reinvention related sticky notes, I would say probably one of the most important things to keep in mind is that once is not enough. Meaning if you are reinventing yourself, presumably you're you're pivoting from A to B, it's going to take a while for people to remember that you're doing this. I mean, it's it's not it's not even necessarily malice or anything. It's just that literally they're they're used to be, you know, thinking of you in this way. And now you're like, no, no, I do this other thing. And they're busy. They're not really paying that close attention. And so they might forget. And so you need to keep reminding them. And that doesn't mean, you know, you're banging them over the head, but you remind them by things like on social media, for instance, sharing articles or writing about topics related to your new thing so that you keep reinforcing, oh, right, she's doing that now. So, because it takes a little while to sink in. You can't just tell somebody something once and assume that they will remember. So I, I think the, the reinforcement element is important. There's, uh, you got to put some time in. Yeah. And what's the the work like, we, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the, like, here's what you need to do. But tell me about or tell us about like the out the inner work, like, what needs to happen on the inside for you to really feel that you're connected with whatever your reinvention is and, and get yourself moving forward? I think a lot of times the obstacles around reinvention are in fact, inner obstacles. I mean, the, the outer ones, usually we can we can figure them out. I mean, it's like, okay, well, if you don't know how to do a certain thing, I mean, okay, take a class, hire a tutor. Like, it's not, you know, it's not that hard. Like, we, you know, as a culture, we generally know the types of things that one can do in terms of information acquisition or things like that. What is often harder is that people stop themselves from even trying because they sometimes think that they that they can't do it or they're afraid of what other people are going to say, you know, hearkening back to what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, the, the truth is, I mean, like, okay, be forewarned. One of the things that I talk about in my book, Reinventing You, is actually that ironically, we often, if we're not really thinking about it, we assume that our family, our close friends are going to be the people that are the biggest boosters for our reinvention. But the truth is, it is often not the case. It may, in fact, even be the opposite because they 
feel like they're protecting us in some way. They're like, well, you know, that's nice, Jackie, but, you know, do you really know how to do that? Or, oh, but, you know, aren't there already a lot of people that do blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, well, what do you know about that? Why would someone hire you? Wouldn't someone only hire a coach if they're, you know, if they've been in business for 30 years? You haven't been in business 30 years, or, you know, like whatever the thing is. And they think they're being helpful. And, you know, this is, okay, why people are stupid. Of course, they're not being helpful. They're just like projecting their paranoia onto you, right? But we have to understand and separate so that we don't take that in. I'm just sitting here with such a smile and obviously laughter coming (laughs) out. And you're just so right. You just hit the nail on the head. I mean, and not allowing ourselves to stop us, that stop us and to really look inside and know that the power is within us. It doesn't matter what other people are saying and not allowing that to stop us. I mean, you, I'm just laughing because you just, you just hit that. (laughs) Well, and one other thing too, that you, you kind of called out a bit is like people think they're protecting us and they're also protecting themselves from us changing. Mm. And that's been something I've seen. And, you know, Jackie, like we've all gone through some sort of reinvention, Jackie becoming a coach for you going through your forced reinvention, Dory, you know, people love us for the people we are. And I, I noticed that they have fear around us becoming different and what that will mean for them and how they are in relation to us and how we change. Like we, as much as we say we want to embrace change, most of us don't. Yeah, so true. And I'm curious, Dory, because when good things ha- have happened to you over the years in terms of your career and you've had proud moments and, and accomplishments, how do you go about sharing those with the same people that may have you know, said that, oh, are you really sure that you're going to be doing this? Can you really handle this? I think... One of the ways that I have adapted to that, and, you know, and this is also, you know, there's, there's a lot of uncomfortable truths around reinvention sometimes. I will say that I have been very fortunate that I have a lot of really supportive people in my life who are glad to hear about my successes and celebrate them. But, okay, asterisk, it is not that I am more fortunate than other people in that I have, you know, this inherent array of cheerleaders. It's that I have ruthlessly culled people who are not that. You know, I mean, I, I, my mom is really, is really fantastic. I feel very lucky because she's, she's generally very encouraging. But, but one thing that I really respect about my mom is I remember one time, this is like over a decade ago when I was starting out in my consulting business and I had a proposal that I had submitted and I was telling her all about it. And then, you know, okay, so it came back and I did not end up getting the contract. And so I was kind of disappointed about that. And she says to me, she says, well, do you think you were charging too much money? And I said to her, I got to tell you, that's not helpful. I, I said, I need you to never say that to me again, because that is fear talking. And I don't want that in my head. And she said, okay. <laughs> and she didn't do it again. She, she, she got it. And, uh, and so, and, you know, as it turns out with a very same client later on, I, I ended up uh, staying in touch with them, submitting another proposal and we, and I got it, you know, and I ended up having a pretty lucrative relationship with them, you know, multiple six figures over a period of years. But, you know, you can't go to the place of like, oh, is it too much money? Are you asking for too much? Like that kind of thing. And so, you know, the, the people that I have around me, I select very carefully to be the kind of people that really do cheer you on and not frenemies or people that are threatened in some way or sort of sniping or whatever. I can't stand that. And if I 
discover, you know, that somebody is like that. And, and I have had to kind of go through and call a little bit in terms of relationships, because if someone is in overt ways, or perhaps even more damagingly in subtle ways, kind of, you know, doing the little death by a thousand cuts with their little remarks or their little snipes or, or whatever, it's, it's really harmful. I don't want them in my life. And some people don't necessarily have the stomach to do that. But I know that what I'm doing is important. And I can't let people put their own baggage onto what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I love that quote. That is fear talking. Like that is just such a such a good one liner. I'm curious, what does it mean to have a life of purpose? And can you tell us about your purpose? I think that having a life of purpose Purpose gets talked about a lot, obviously, in the modern business context. I mean, everybody is uh, is into it, justifiably, uh, certainly, especially post the the famous Gallup study that said that 70% of workers are disengaged and that kind of thing. And so the antidote is purpose. I think that it is clear, it is self-evident that you are going to be a heck of a lot more excited about what you're doing if you feel like it is meaningful. And so the question is, well, what is meaningful for different people and how can they tap into that effectively? I think that for me, and I think this is true for, for other people as well, there, we often put a lot of pressure on ourselves to articulate what the purpose is. Like, oh, well, can you state it? Can it be, you know, can it be like a mission statement? Like, what is it? And of course, most people don't know that. And then they feel bad that they don't know it. Like, oh, I don't know my purpose. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's like this depressing thing. But I mean, I, I think that... I consider purpose to be an emergent property that often you just can't, you can't sort of decide top down what it is. You have to kind of figure it out. You can only figure it out by doing. And so that means inherently that there's going to be a period of time where you don't know what your purpose is and you're just kind of moving forward anyway. And so I think that one of the tensions that we have to hold is understanding that we might be, you know, searching for the purpose but we have to move forward even in the absence of being able to clearly articulate it. And so what I would say uh, for, for many people, I mean, these days, I, I feel like I do have my arms around it, which is that something that is quite meaningful to me, which I feel very lucky to be able to do with my executive coaching work and my, you know, my online courses and things like that, uh, my books, is helping, helping smart people, talented people get their voices heard in a noisy environment, you know, helping, helping people decode the process of how to do that. But I think that for all of us, we need to, to just understand that, you know, take a guess, create a hypothesis and move in that direction. And as long as you are in a broad brushstroke, moving in a direction that you feel like is interesting and positive, that's enough. And it will help guide you to your purpose. You don't have to have your purpose figured out right now. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I'm like, there, there's so many things that you've said that I think have been incredibly powerful. I want to highlight the emergent property of purpose and thinking about 
you know, it is so divisive when we ask people, what's your purpose? And they don't know because you all of a sudden put people into a category of not being enough or not having found the thing they're supposed to have found in their life versus the people who have. And so it's kind of like, like you said, well, what's wrong with me? And I'm even imagining, you know, at points where I felt I really didn't know my purpose, how it took away self-esteem and self-confidence when people would ask that question and probably kept me from looking for it or finding it even more because I did that crunch up in a ball and like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I guess I'll just kind of sit here and not look for it because I'm, I'm too scared to even, you know, it's like the fear, the fear mindset comes into play when you feel you aren't enough. So I think that's a really powerful statement and way to look at purpose is that it's an emergent property versus just some sentence, you know, how to spew out to someone. And Dory, I mean, I, I think, you know, we started this conversation very focused on, you know, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial you. And I actually love that we've gone in this direction of really talking about reinventing yourself. But I am curious, because this was your more recent book, and and, and really, I'm looking at this as a, you know, as you are a holistic kind of approach. Once we've reinvented ourselves, like what next? What's the entrepreneurial you, you know, piece that you'd want to leave with listeners today? Yeah, so I wrote entrepreneurial you, because I, for, for me, my, my books in in many ways, I thought of as a trilogy. Reinventing you is, of course, figuring out where you want to be. You know, what job do you want to be in? What field do you want to be in? What functional role do you want to be in? Sort of solving that question. And then my second book was Stand Out, which is a book about, okay, now you're in that place. Now you're at that company. You're in that role. What do you do then? How do you get recognized? How do you get people to understand that you are good at what you do and get them to listen to you and pay attention to you? That was a really important question that I wanted to answer. And then finally, entrepreneurial you was, okay, yay, you are you are in a role that you like, people are listening to you. How do you actually monetize that? <laughs> and uh, because it's it's actually not really self-evident. One of the things that I have learned and and that that others may uh, certainly be aware of is influence does not necessarily translate to money directly. It can sometimes, but not always. I mean, you read these articles about people who are like YouTube influencers with millions and millions of views, and literally they are a barista, or at least, you know, until the pandemic, they were a barista and they would get mobbed at like the Starbucks, like, oh my God, it's you. But they had to be working for, you know, 13 bucks an hour because the the pay rate on, you know, millions of YouTube views is so low. And so you have to be smart about how you are monetizing. And that means a lot of different things. But for people who, you know, like LinkedIn employees have, you know, a a steady day job, that's actually wonderful, because it means it can be a really smart launching pad for you to develop side projects and things that you're working on. And those are skills, anything that you do in your spare time, first of all, is a skill that you are building you know, while other people are like binge watching television shows, you are actually doing professional development in real time. And you now have more skills that you can bring back to your job that makes you more valuable to your job. So it's advantageous in that area. But it's also fantastic because it creates another revenue stream for you. If you are, you know, like Leah, like Jackie, if you're a coach, that's a great thing that you can do on the side that doesn't conflict with your your day job. And it just it provides knowledge and variation and uh, and a way to, to earn extra money, which is always helpful because we don't know when recessions are going to hit. We don't know when pandemics are going to hit. 
And there's a lot of ways you can do it. I mean, you know, you could be a you could be a baker, you could be a photographer, you could be a wardrobe consultant. I mean, there's a million things that you can do. But in entrepreneurial you, I, I really sort of break down the process of, you know, well, how do you, for instance, build an audience around that? You know, what would it look like to start a online membership community or a podcast or a blog? What would it mean if you wanted to start doing a little coaching on the side or if you wanted to put together some kind of a workshop or an event? And so each chapter really breaks that down. But I think for me, what is so important about that is, you know, we have to think about our professional lives and our income streams as legs on a table. And if you only have one leg on the table, it's very sturdy until somebody, you know, bumps into it or it gets knocked over. And then it is really not sturdy at all. You got nothing. But if you have a table with two legs or three legs, it is so much more resilient because whatever the shock is, whatever the disruption is, you have something in your back pocket. And in a chaotic, uncertain environment like we have today, that's a really valuable thing is to have, you know, as they say, both a belt and suspenders. And everything that you just discussed and what entrepreneurial you is really about, you know, creating multiple revenue streams, it just so perfectly connects with what we were just talking about, how trying things out to maybe find that purpose that is within you. And during this pandemic, if you are fortunate enough to have a job, and if you're not, there is slowness and a stillness of life right now and perhaps more time to really explore some of these passions or hobbies or ways that can actually potentially turn into multiple revenue streams. So highly recommend Entrepreneurial You. And in the beginning of this episode, you asked a question to our listeners, Dory, how can you build more resiliency into your professional life? And I love that vision of a table and and multiple multiple legs on a table to help you really stand up. Is there anything else you would add to, to answering that question, how to build more resiliency into your professional life? I think one of the things that's that's worth thinking about is creating counter-cyclical elements too. And uh, it sounds kind of technical, but what I mean is that there are certain things that do well in, in boom times, but they can falter, of course. And so if you can create something that does well, even when things are challenging as they are now in the middle of a pandemic or, you know, what is perhaps likely to be uh, an extended recession, you are even stronger. So thinking about, yes, how do you create multiple income streams in your business? But also, are there are there things that you can do that become even more useful in a in a down economy? So, I mean, as an example, in my business, for instance, I earn a lot of my revenue by doing keynote speaking for corporations, which is great when there's lots of conferences and everyone wants to bring people together when the economy is doing well. That is an excellent bull market profession. It is not a great profession right now when no one's flying and no one's having large gatherings. I know a lot of colleagues that have really suffered because their entire business was speaking. They just, they went all in on that. And Instead, one of the things that I did, which I, I now, of course, feel very glad I did, was that I foresaw the need to have different income streams and, and different different po- you know pots of revenue coming in. And so one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing is online learning and online courses. And so 
when there is a recession, online courses actually do really well because people realize, oh gosh, I have to upskill. I have to reinvent myself for a new career or I need to get even better to make sure that I don't get laid off if other people are getting laid off. And so that is something that, you know, you might not be speaking, but you have these online courses now and uh, and people are diving into that. So th- just thinking through, just asking the question, what are the things that that I can do and how can I make myself resilient and flexible in all kinds of circumstances? Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome, Dory. And it resonates with me. I know of some of the people that I look at as I call, you know, the mentors I may not have met yet or expanders that are keynotes and that's a big part of their life. And now they've shifted into, you know, hopefully shifted into a space where they can say I had a backup, but many don't. So I'm curious, you know, for you, that kind of leads to, to a question around what's next. So for you, seeing this big shift, who knows when life is going to return to normal? Like what's next for you? What's the empire you're going to build to create the the new the new normal? Well, one of the goals that I have had actually for the past uh, year or so is I had a goal that by the end of 2021, I wanted to have at least 50% of my income coming from passive revenue streams. So by passive, I mean something that, you know, is is some kind of an asset that you create once and then creates residual spinoff income, uh, things that you don't need to be present in person for. Now, I was choosing to try to focus on that because I was traveling so much and feeling kind of, you know, burned out from all the travel. But it also fortunately solves the problem of, okay, when you are not allowed to travel, when that is not a thing, passive revenue can be really helpful. So I've been working toward that. So I have been thinking through, you know, these are sort of technical things around online courses, but like building out funnels, that's like, you know, sort of email sales sequences and things like that. So it's, you know, kind of technical backend things, but things that are really important in terms of building out a robust revenue stream that can that can last and that can be helpful and appealing to people even from remote and even in a challenging economy. So that's one thing. And then I also am working on a new book, which I, I just have closed the book deal about long-term thinking. And so I'm interested in exploring that topic over the next year or so that I'll be working on the book. Congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, very cool. Um, Dory, thank you so much for for being here. This has been a knowledge packed 50 minutes. So it's it's been really, really awesome to have you on and to just hear your wisdom, especially given how timely it is for people who are going to need it more than we probably even thought we would, you know, at the beginning of 2020. Uh, So I wanted to, you know, as you were talking, you reminded me of a quote that Brene Brown shares in her book, Braving the Wilderness, that I wanted to share. And the quote is, you are only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place and no place at all. The price is high and the reward is great. And that's just something that I, I thought of as I was listening to you, because I think there's an incredible power in the recognition that we do belong everywhere and that we can create what we want where we want. And that's really the the genesis of, of reinvention, right? Yeah, so true. Love that. Thanks, Leah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you listeners for joining us. You can find more of In the Arena on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and we are so happy to have you on the journey. So I hope you, we both hope you enjoyed today's episode and we will talk to you all soon. Have a great day. 